All right, ready for God's Word? All right, so we've got a, a new series in front of us uh, for the next several weeks. And uh, let me start with this. 500 years ago, 500 years ago on Tuesday, October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther set off the Protestant Reformation. Now, the seeds of protest, Luther wasn't the first to kind of say some of the things that he said or to notice some things. The seeds of Reformation had actually been brewing in many different European countries over the past uh, decades leading up to this moment. But it is a fact of history that one particular act that Martin Luther did set the Reformation ablaze. And the act was simple enough. It wasn't even a terribly provocative act, although some people kind of picture it that way. But Luther went to his hometown church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed a document to the door of the church that came, this document came to be known as the 95 Theses. In other words, it was just a document with 95 arguments or points of discussion that Luther wanted to have concerning the doctrine and the practice of the Catholic Church and how that was in his reading and his study that was deviating from what the Word of God actually taught. And so he went after their doctrine, he went after their practice in this discussion document, and he published many books, and his views were widely, widely distributed around Europe. And many people were thinking in terms of this reformation, this protest against the things that the Catholic Church had been teaching. But many years later, he was now being considered a heretic by the Catholic Church, and they brought him before an ecclesiastical court to try him for matters of heresy. And when he stood before this court, condemned for his beliefs, which he was learning simply because he began to read and study the Bible, this is what he said, these now famous words, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now some of you, when you see a quote like that, that fires you up. And you're like, I'm like Luther. I love the Word of God. I love the doctrines I'm hearing in the Word of God. And, and this excites me. And I'm leaning in right now to hear more of this. And I'm a realist, and as soon as I start talking about history, and as soon as we start using the word doctrine, and we're going to do a doctrinal series, I know that there are those whose eyes are glazing over, even as I'm speaking, at the thought of history and of doctrine. But I would just ask you this. Those of you who are longtime members of our church have been part of this for some time, you will know this to be true. And if you're newer to Harvest, I would just ask you to give the benefit of the doubt. But I think you know me well enough to know that we never spend time on things that do not matter in the here and now. That every time we get together and we open God's Word and we hear it, we're not interested in just adding to our knowledge base. We want to hear something that's going to change our lives now. We want the ongoing transformation of the Word of God. And so even though there's history, and even though there's doctrine, it's still going to impact us. And I would just ask you for the favor of leaning in 
to this series. Because we're not going to spend time on things that don't matter in the here and now. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to be standing outside these doors. And we're going to get the Word of God open in front of us. And we're going to look at and rehearse seven must-believe doctrines for Christians. Because history gives us warnings that we must heed. And listen, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. So we're going to take our lead from the Reformers' brave journey into rediscovering what the Bible says and what we must believe and how that's going to change us to make a difference in how we live our lives. And like Luther, I would hope that at the end of every single message, seven times, I pray we would affirm, here I stand. I can do no other. This is what I believe. This is what I believe. So let's spend a moment praying and asking God to bless our time today and our time in this series that all of us would have that deeply held conviction about these things. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, it's a, a privilege again to be together and I would pray that you would open our, eyes, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your word again. God, enlighten us to your truth. Inform us where we're lacking knowledge and give us greater confidence in what we believe. Father, please continue the process by the power of your Holy Spirit of transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We need that. So we pray for it. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? Amen. All right. Well, let's... Um, before we get into this first message, let me give you a couple of, uh, a couple, three really series notes to let you know kind of what this series is really all about. Uh, first of all, in the series notes, I would say that this is a systematic theology series. Uh, that might not mean a lot to you, but let me very quickly explain it. Um, the stock and trade of our church is to get a single passage open in front of us. I can't uh, tell you really how eager I am to get back to the Gospel of Luke in the new year and just to have a passage in front of us that we work through verse by verse to get the message from that passage for us. That would rightly be called a biblical theology. We're looking at a single passage and deriving what that passage is saying out to us. Systematic theology is this. I start with a topic. For today's message, the Word of God. I want to hear what the Bible says about itself. I start with the topic rather than starting with the passage. And now I'm going to take the topic and I'm going to look throughout the entire Scripture to find out everything the Bible says about the topic. You see the difference? I can either start with the passage or I can start with the topic. Biblical theology starts with the passage. Systematic theology starts with the topic. And so that's what we're going to do. And so I just want you to know up front... Not a single passage in any of these messages, but a lot of passages throughout the Scripture that all speak to this one a topic. Secondly, the message format, each of the seven messages are going to have this, four, this threefold format. Um, and you can see that in your sermon notes that you have in front of you. Uh, so the outline is essentially going to be the same with a different detail depending on the topic we're looking at. What I believe, why I believe it, and how I'm living because of it. You're going to see that seven times in all of the messages. And then this, um, we have set up a resource page 
um, at harvestberry.ca slash here I stand with recommendations for further study with the message videos and audios with small group uh, curriculum is going to be there and uh, we're going to add a Q&A section where if you have particular theological questions you want to ask, maybe it's coming out of this message I'm going to preach today, or maybe it's about one of the other topics that's coming up and you want to make sure it's covered. Some of those questions I'll answer in the preaching. If it's something that's coming up and other ones, we're just going to answer right on the web page. And so uh, send your questions in if you have any. And I want to say this, the reason why we're putting so many uh, links to further studies on each of these topics is because... Have you ever been to a restaurant and you decide to just uh, do, instead of getting like a full meal, you do like a taster, you go on the taster menu and you get like a little bit of everything on your plate rather than just one meal? So this series is a little bit like a tasting menu, okay? It's like, it's like I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit on the Bible today, but please understand there's so much more I could say about this and I just don't have time. And so if you want to pursue it further, anything that I'm saying today, there's a lot more that can be said about every one of the sub points that I'm bringing up today. And, and, and you can get that, those further studies, right on uh, the resource page. All right, so that's kind of the setup for it all. You ready for message number one now? Or are you exhausted already? <laughs> okay, here we go. The foundation for establishing what we believe has to be the Word of God. So this is the right place to start. What I believe, here's a simple statement, the Bible is God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. Now that is... Kind of the simplest way to actually say what we believe about the Bible. But let me also say that that statement's kind of inadequate because it doesn't say enough. That statement is, is packed with meaning when we start to think about what we really believe about the Bible, about God's Word, and how it's come to us. And so it means, five words, they're all in your notes there, it means that it's the revelation of God. It means that it reveals something about God. It's God revealing himself to us. It, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Word of God came to us. That it's inerrant, without error in the originals. That it has been assembled as, as, into a collection that we call the canon of Scripture that we're not taking away from and we're not subtracting from. And that it has been faithfully transmitted to us over all of these centuries so that what we have today is the reliable, inspired Word of God. Now those five words are all so important and we'll unpack those in a few moments. So we've made a very simple statement. The Bible is God's Word. We understand that that simple statement is, is really further explained with these five critical categories. And then we want to hear what our church actually says about this, kind of in a paragraph form. Our church doctrinal statement kind of makes it more specific. <coughs> Excuse me. And all five of these categories are inherent in the statement. So we say, we believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testament to be the full record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. Different men, while writing according to their own styles and personalities, were supernaturally moved along by the Holy Spirit to record God's very words, inerrant in the original writings. Therefore, those applying themselves to study its literal, historical, grammatical context can accurately understand God's Word. Scripture is fully trustworthy as our final and sufficient authority for all of life. So that's a fuller statement. The Bible is God's Word. Five important things that come out of that. State it with a full doctrinal statement. And, and that helps us now get to this place where we can break that down and say, why do I actually believe that it's the revelation of God? Why do I believe that it's inspired by Him? And so on. So that's where we are 
right now. It's what I believe and now uh, why I believe it. Why do I believe these five critical points about the Bible? Let's start with Revelation. If you're writing things down in your notes, uh, get this down. The Bible is God's special revelation of himself to humanity. The Bible is God's special revelation of himself to humanity. Now, it's not his only revelation. I call it special revelation because there are two different kinds of revelation. There's general revelation that's available to everybody. A creation, for example, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 talk about the creation as, as the general revelation of God. In other words, even if you didn't have the Bible, you should know there's a God simply by looking at the creation. Because Paul writes in Romans 1 that the, that the attributes are, of God are seen in the things that he has made. And so we are all without excuse because the creation shouts the glory of God. That's general revelation, God revealing to himself to us in the creation. And then there's the special revelation of Jesus Christ himself. God himself took on human flesh. He was incarnate. He came and lived among us. And Jesus Christ himself was the special revelation of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 speak to that. And then we have the special revelation of the written word of God, what we're talking about here. So the Bible isn't the only revelation of God. There are other revelations of God. But speaking specifically of the scriptures, Jesus said this, uh, John 5, 39. He said to those who were, uh, he was having a conversation with, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they, these scriptures, it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, the Bible, everything about the Bible points to Jesus Christ. You look into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is entirely pointing us to and getting us to the place where we're seeing Jesus. When Jesus was incarnate and became a man and lived among us, he, he, he took on human flesh. He was revealing God to us. When he uh, taught of the gospel, he taught about the kingdom of God. When he did the miracles, when he interacted with people, when he was tempted and yet did not sin, when he, when he did all that he did, including giving his life on the cross and, and his, his burial and then his resurrection and then his ascension to the Father and then the promises we have about his return, all of that is to reveal Jesus Christ to us. And, and Jesus comes to us to reveal the Father to us. And so when we think as human beings that we would like to know God and like to know more about God, we study the life of Jesus because Jesus points to the Father. He said this in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. They saw the Father because they saw Jesus, Jesus revealing God to us. And the Scriptures revealing Jesus to us. Paul uh, himself later on wrote about the gospel in Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, when you read this, when you read this letter, when you read what I'm writing right now, which he didn't necessarily know at the time that his letter to the Ephesians was the inspired word of God. He's just writing a letter about the gospel. And he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, the gospel which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, okay, it wasn't revealed to them the same way as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and his prophets by the Spirit, some of whom were then called upon to write the New Testament because these things about Jesus had been revealed. And they're revealed to us 
in the New Testament. So we have this book so that we will know God through Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's special revelation of himself to humanity. Now, how did it come to us? That's our second word, inspiration. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3.16, familiar verse, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I love the fact that the ESV actually puts breathed out by God because the original language word, the Greek here, actually that's what it says. It's not the word inspiration so much as it is God breathed. God breathed, a compound word in the original language. And God literally breathed out his words so that the words that we have in the Bible are God's very words to us. And we need to treat this book like no other book because it's unique in all of history. Now, inspiration worked in this way, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of the Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This isn't just someone coming up with an idea about God and writing it down. This is God delivering his words through a man. Notice, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God used holy men to write these words. And and how that played out was different depending on the situation. So in the book of Revelation, you'll actually see a situation where it's dictation, where he's literally told, John is literally told, write down what I say. But in other situations, it's different than that. The book of Hebrews, for example, is a sermon manuscript. If you read the book of Hebrews straight through, it'll take you about 50 minutes, about the same length as one of my messages. It's a sermon, start to finish. Anonymous, we don't know who preached it, whose sermon manuscript it was, but this person sat down. They didn't think they were necessarily writing the Bible. They were just preparing a sermon. And so it has that feel about it. We, we, have, we have letters that were written. Not God dictating exactly what Paul's going to write to the Corinthians, but but Paul just writing out, this is what is on my heart to share with you. We find out later it was inspired by God. Or in the case of Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel and uh, the Acts of the Apostles, both of these written by Luke, and he said these are an orderly account that he actually wrote to a single person named Theophilus to give him an understanding of the gospel, all the things related to Christ, and the starting of the early church. Luke researched it and meticulously wrote it and highly organized his gospel and the book of Acts. So it wasn't just dictation. We have different styles, different genres of literature there's poetry there's prophecies and apocalyptic as i said there's sermons there's history there's letters there's wisdom all these different types of literature the bible was written in different languages depending on who was writing it wasn't some mysterious heavenly language that the bible was dictated into it was hebrew the language of the day among the jewish people it was aramaic in portions it was koine greek the common language of the roman empire at the time the language of the day. The Spirit worked through the uniqueness of the author's writing styles and use of vocabulary. And you can see that as you read through the Bible that they're in different styles because they came from different authors. But every word in the Bible, the Holy Spirit not violating the particular style of the 
human authors, but every word in the Bible God meant to be there. Every word we have before us is God's word, breathed out by him. Revelation, inspiration, the third word is inerrancy. The inerrancy of the Bible means that it is without errors in the originals or what are called the often called the autographs. The originals are often called the autographs because these would be, we would presume, uh, the original manuscript of Moses might have Moses' autograph at the bottom of it or David's or, or Isaiah's or, or Matthew's or John's or Paul's. Their autograph would be there. These are the originals written by these men. And Wayne Grudem says this, a theologian, he says, an inerrant Bible does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It's inerrant. Now let me ask you a question. Do we have any of the originals? Do we have any of the autographs of any of the 66 books of the Bible? Do we? Oh, we don't. We don't. And, and you know what? I, I think sometimes it's really good that we don't. Because if we had an original, you know what we would, we would do with it? We would put it under glass and we would build a shrine around it and we would charge people to come and see it. Right? We would worship the artifact in an unnatural way and providentially God saw that we would not have any of these originals. Now the Bible does not explicitly tell us that it is inerrant. We can't find a verse, in other words, in the Bible that says that the Bible is without errors. But we would call this doctrine a logical assumption based on the character of God, based on everything else we know about God and about his word. In other words, let me ask you this question. Would you agree with this, that God cannot act contrary to his character? Would you agree with that? God cannot act contrary to his character. God is holy. He's perfect. He is without sin in every way. And God not only is truthful, God is himself the embodiment of truth. And so if God is going to produce a word for us so that we might know him, where he's going to reveal himself, that he himself is going to expire, it follows then the logical assumption is that his word will be without error. Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. And this perfect, holy God who cannot lie communicated his word through human agents and ensured that his word would be without error and trustworthy. We have to conclude that God would communicate the revelation of himself in an error-free way so that we can trust it. So that when we face the mountain that's in front of us, when we're, when we're walking through the valley of deepest darkness, when we have our most difficult circumstances, when we need to make a decision, when we need hope from God, that we can read this word that he's given to us and trust it. Trust that it is without error. Psalm 18.30 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. He's going to love you. He's going to care for you. He's going to pr protect you no matter what you face because everything he says is without error. The Bible is tried, it's tested, and it's proven in our lives to be exactly what God says that it is. All right, fourth word, canonicity. Now the word canon refers to an accepted or approved list of books in a collection. An approved or accepted list of books in a collection. 
Now, I, I looked online because canon uh, can be applied to other collections of books, not just the Word of God. But um, if you are a Tolkien fan, J.R.R. Tolkien, you like the Lord of the Rings, anybody here with me on this, and you maybe read some of the books, the like super crazy Tolkien people have all these discussion boards and web pages that are set up to discuss what actually belongs in the Tolkien canon. Because not every story fits in perfectly to the whole narrative of Middle Earth. And so there are some stories that are kind of outside of that. But what big discussions, what belongs in the Tolkien canon? Now we want to discuss something a little bit more important than Lord of the Rings here. We want to talk about the Word of God. So what are the actual accepted or approved list of books in the collection that we call the Bible. Well, it's 66 books, as we've already said, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. By the time Jesus walked on this earth, the Old Testament canon was set hundreds of years before. The Jewish people had already recognized the 39 books that are in their canon for thousands of years now. That's just been accepted fact. Those 39 books are the Hebrew canon, and that was brought into our Bible. Uh, by AD 367, the 4th century AD, the letter of uh, Athanasius had listed the 27 books of the New Testament as we have them. That was affirmed 30 years later by the Council of Carthage. So the leading theologians and church leaders of the day got together in Carthage and they affirmed the 27 books of the New Testament that Athanasius had actually identified. Now both of these canons have withstood. How did they get actually in there? How do we know that these 39 and these 27 are the actual Word of God? Well, it was put through a very rigorous examination to determine their canonicity. In fact, I want to show this to you. Uh, the five tests of canonicity, this comes from Norman Geisler and William Nix. The five tests of canonicity. Number one, is it authoritative? Does it have this, thus says the Lord, quality to it? Is there something authoritative that's coming down from God? If the book doesn't have that, then it's not going to be in the canon. Secondly, is it prophetic? In other words, does it have the authority of an Old Testament prophet, king, judge, or scribe, or in the case of the New Testament, an apostle of the church? Does it have the authority of an apostle, written by an apostle, or written under the authority of an apostle? Does it have that? Third, is it authentic? In other words, is this book of the Bible that we're testing consistent with the other 65 books of the Bible? We want one consistent theology, one consistent message throughout. Is it authentic? For example, one big controversy that Luther himself had to wrestle with as he examined salvation by faith alone, he was very, very excited by the book of Romans, but he had a hard time with the book of James, which emphasizes faith without works is dead. And the whole issue of grace and works, we'll look at this later, made it tough for, for Luther to think that James really belonged in the canon, but then he eventually came to that and made sure that it was included in his New Testament as well. Is it authentic? Is it consistent with the rest of the Bible? Fourth, is it dynamic? Does it demonstrate God's life-changing powers? There's something about this that shows me the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, is it received? Is it accepted and used by believers in the church. We think about that Hebrews manuscript of that sermon and how that, I mean, after that first guy preached it, and that was such a great sermon, and that manuscript got copied and sent over here and sent over there, and someone else preached it, and everybody was using it. And the, and the body of Christ, the church, was recognizing there was something special about this particular sermon 
that it should be included in the canon. Now, a great question here is why, aside from the five tests, why did we stop at 66? What if there's some new revelation that should be added? And I think that's a super great question. And I want you to look at Revelation 22, 18, and 19. So we're almost at the very last words in the New Testament. And here's what we read. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Here's a warning coming. And I will say that the first application for this is to the actual book of Revelation. When he talks about this book, he's talking about Revelation. Providentially, this is the last book that was written. It was late in the first century. It's the last book in the New Testament for a reason. Providentially, that's where it belongs. And so I don't think it's wrong for us to look at these verses and apply it throughout the entirety of Scripture and say, this applies to the whole Bible. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, if you're, if you're going to add a 67th book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That sounds bad to me. Okay? Anybody here, you know what? At the risk of being plagued, I'm, I want to add a book. I don't think anybody's signing up for that. 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book, you want to take something out of it? The book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. In other words, you're going to lose uh, the, any guarantee, any assurance that you have salvation. You're not going to be saved. So you don't want to add to it. And you don't want to subtract from it. Both of these things are bad things. The canon is set with these 66 books. Now, a couple of other questions that some may have. Uh, how many of you are aware that there's something called the Apocrypha? Raise your hands if you know about the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of books that were written in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament being written and the beginning of the New Testament, the time of Christ. They were written during that time. They're very helpful for a number of reasons to kind of set historical settings in all of this. But they do not stand the test of canonicity. And so you might ask yourself the question, well, who has accepted them? Well, the Catholic Church has included the Apocrypha in their Bible. So if you see a Catholic Bible, it includes these extra books. But what's really curious about it is the Catholic Church did not add the Apocrypha into their Bible until about 40 or 50 years after Martin Luther started challenging them about some of their teachings and practices. Now, here's the thing with Luther. What he did is he just started reading the Bible, and he started seeing things that were inconsistent with Catholic teaching and practice. And the Catholics said, we have to respond to this. And the Catholics went to the Bible and went, yeah, we can't support that from this book. So they said, you know what? The Apocrypha has some things in it that are going to help us support these doctrines. Let's put the Apocrypha in here. And that's going to help us address some of the things that Luther is saying. And I will just say this. And again, it's not within the scope of this message to go any deeper into that. There's a lot more written about it. But the Apocrypha does not stand the test of canonicity. And then I would need to talk to you about something called the Pseudepigrapha, which are a collection of books that were written in the New Testament era, but did not stand the test of canonicity for the New Testament. Many, many of these books were uh, written. One of the most common that's been spoken of today is the Gospel of Thomas, and all I'll say about that, again, not within the scope of this message to discuss all of this, but the Gospel of Thomas has so many errors with regard to genuine theology. There's so many problems with it. There's actually some very disturbing teaching in the Gospel of Thomas, and um, it does not stand the test of canonicity as well. 
We have our canon, 66 books of the Bible. All right, you ready for the last one in this section? Yes, you still with me? Please nod your heads. Let me know you're still breathing out there. All right, here we go. The last word is transmission. And this is the ancient process of copying the biblical manuscripts and passing them down from one generation uh, to another for the benefit of the community and for the benefit of revealing God to them. Now, obviously, there were no photocopiers. There was no uh, printing press. And so the manner in which uh, copies were made, if a new synagogue wanted a copy of the Isaiah scroll, then they would have to go to an existing synagogue. They would have to get a scroll and they would have to get a blank scroll, and they would have to have a copyist or a scribe who would come and who would copy that scroll onto this one so the synagogue could have its own copy of the book of Isaiah. So that's transmission, and that happened for really thousands of years. And um, so when we hear that, we have to ask ourselves the question, how can we know that what we have has been faithfully and accurately passed on to us? And the bottom line with this, again, if God is revealing himself to us and inspiring his word to us, then we believe that God would also providentially protect his word. God would make sure that what we have is his word accurately transmitted to us. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And what we have in our hands today is the word of God transmitted to us faithfully and accurately. And in fact, this is a huge part of what happened in the Reformation because the people, in essence, had forgotten about the Word of God. The church itself had forgotten about the Word of God. What happened in the Reformation was a rediscovery of Scripture. The five tenets of the Reformation, <coughs> excuse me, start with this one, sola scriptura, or Scripture alone. This is our final authority. This is the place where we're going to go to get the revelation of God. Luther saw errors in the church's teaching because he simply read and studied the Bible. And it's almost impossible to grasp this. But at the time, priests and monks who were devoting their life to, to religion and to the church were encouraged to not study the Bible. Does that seem impossible to even understand that someone would be a priest and would stand up and be responsible for the care and the shepherding of God's people, but would be told, don't study the Bible. Study dogma, study church teaching, study commentaries, but don't study the actual Bible. And in fact, the Catholic Church had already drifted away from the original language versions. They had drifted away from ever studying the Greek or Hebrew in the Old and New Testaments, and they were studying the only Bible they actually had was the Latin Vulgate. What Luther did is he bypassed the Latin and went back to the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts to study, and then he did something illegal and subversive. He translated the Bible into German, the language of the people, because he believed that God's people should have God's Word to read it and study it for themselves. And the Catholic Church thought that that was too dangerous. That the common people were too unlearned to be trusted with what the Bible said. Now providentially about 40 or 50 years prior, the printing press had been invented in, in Gut, uh, Gutenberg had invented the printing press. And so Luther took full advantage of that and printed his tracts and printed his books and then printed his German Bible and got it into the hands of the people 
so they could look at it for themselves and understand it and see the errors of the church for themselves. They didn't need Luther to tell them. They could read the Bible and see it and know it for themselves. So no person could be denied the full expression of the Christian life because now they could read it for themselves. They couldn't be held back from living for Christ as God intended for that to be. This is why we're cultivating this kind of a church where we have the Word of God on our laps in front of us as the preacher is preaching so we can know it for ourselves and see these truths ourselves. When Paul was doing his missionary journeys through the New Testament and we got into Macedonia and he preached in a city called Berea and he said the Jews in that city were a more noble breed than in other cities because they took the messages that Paul was preaching there and they compared them to the Scriptures. They searched the Bible to make sure that what Paul was saying was consistent with the Word of God. We want that very same thing to be happening here. Now all of that said, you and I have the Bible because of Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and other reformers who risked their lives and some of them gave their lives as martyrs to put the Word of God into our hands and in our own language. And all of this is wonderful knowledge to have, but theology without practice is less than useless. And how we live must flow out of what we believe. What we believe must impact how we live our lives. And so as we consider this doctrine of the Bible, as we say, here I stand on the Word of God, we also have to say this, this is how I'm living because of this. Let's look at these. First of all, trusting its truthfulness. Trusting its truthfulness. We live in a world that preaches relativism and experience. In other words, the, what the world says to us is, whatever your truth is, mine might be different and both are valid. Truth is relative. Whatever you've experienced, that's good for you. Whatever I've experienced is good for me. Both are valid. Now, what the world does not want to hear today is that there is actually an objective truth established by God, a divine truth, that can be known and can be lived out. We believe that there is an objective truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Jesus prayed for His followers. John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Essentially, Jesus is praying, Father, make them holy. Set them apart for Yourself by the truth. Keep them in essence, keep them from believing the lies of this world. Set them apart from the world. The world is telling them all kinds of lies. The world is telling them that truth is relative. The world is telling them that they can find satisfaction in life through pleasure, through power, through influence, through relationships, through money. And it's all a lie. I need to trust the truthfulness of God's Word. I need to be set apart to the truth. I need to be kept from believing the lies of this world and pursuing them. And if we trust the truth, 
the truthfulness of God's word, then we should also be noticed as secondly, submitting to its authority in our lives. We should submit to its authority. Jesus said this in Luke 11, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Do you want to be blessed? Apparently not. Because that was an interrogative, which normally would elicit an answer. Do you want to be blessed? Yeah, I want to be blessed. How, God, can I be blessed? God, would you bless me? He tells us how it happens. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Or James said it this way in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. What a massive fail, hashtag fail. What a massive fail if we come in here today and only hear the word and don't do it. We have to be doers of the word. It has to be changing us and transforming us. I remember going to, when I was in Bible college uh, back in the um, 80s, Seems like a long time ago now. But we would have we did ch chapel three times a week. Monday, Wednesday, Friday would be chapel services that we had to go to. And, and so when you're having to staff that many chapel services, there just aren't enough quality preachers and, and ministry leaders out there who can come and staff all of that. And so just to be uh, candid with you, like we had some messages at chapels that were just stinkers, like just bad, just awful messages. Like, and when you're in Bible college, you know, you're, you've become an expert on the Bible. And so you're highly critical of all these guys that are preaching anyways. And, but some of them were really bad. And our professors would even uh, admit that from time to time. That wasn't a very good message. And that guy, what that guy said isn't right. But here's one thing that one professor taught me that was so important to me. And it's so important to this matter of not only hearing the word, but being a doer of it. He, he would always say this, no matter how bad the message is, he said, I always get something out of every message, and so should you. No matter how bad the message or the preacher is, there's always something I can take away, something I can say, I not only heard it, but I actually did it. And the word of God ought to be doing that in our lives. It's so dynamic, it's living, it's changing us. It should be transforming our lives. Hebrews 4.12, one of my favorite verses about the Word of God says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the Word of God, whenever it's open, whenever we're reading it, whenever we're studying it, whenever it's being preached in front of us, is getting right to the heart of the matter every time. And I know many of you come here exactly for that reason, because you know it's going to speak into your situation. And how many times have you come here or I've come here and just gone, that's exactly what I needed to hear this week in light of what I've just been going through. Because the Word of God is living and it's active and we need to be submitting to its authority in our lives. And then look at this third, uh, affirming its sufficiency. I just don't need any other word. I don't need any other philosophy. I don't need anyone else speaking into my life. I just really need the Word of God. That great verse about inspiration, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, is followed by verse 17 that says, that the man of God, the word of God is inspired, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, complete, mature, growing, becoming more and more like 
Jesus. That's going to happen when I affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, when I'm not going out looking for anything else. And then notice this too, I'm appreciating its clarity. I appreciate the clarity. I, I love that the Word of God is in our language. You know, we use the, uh, we use the English Standard Version translation here because it's, a, it's an up-to-date, contemporary uh, Bible that's written in the language of the day. And I, I affirm uh, the first Bible I believe I ever read was the King James Version, and it was wonderful for 350 years. But the last time I checked, all the conversations in the lobby, none of them were in Elizabethan English. None of them. So it's a wonderful translation. It's amazing. It, it served the church so well. But it's time for us to move on. When we're having to interpret the English and figure out actual English words, we have a problem. The word is to be clear to us. We're to use a translation that helps us with that. We're to interpret the Bible in a pretty simple way. The, the, the rules of interpretation, let me give you a little seminary course right now, but the rules of inter interpretation are fairly simple. We're seeking to get at the plain meaning of the text. Okay, we're seeking to get at the plain meaning of the text. So we're not looking for hidden meanings. I wonder what the hidden message is. There isn't one. We're, we're, not, we're not into numerology. We're assigning numbers to letters and words and coming out with some mathematical stuff. We're not, we're not doing that. We're, we're, not, we're not trying to allegorize everything where something always represents something else. We're not doing that. We're trying to get at the plain meaning of the text. If it's a letter, for example, read the letters of Paul the way, same way you would read an email from a friend. You don't take your email and start assigning number values to it to get a secret message from your friend. You just read the email and do what it says. Paul wrote a letter about certain issues. Just read it that way. And listen, here's the number one rule. We always read everything in context, so everything around uh, a passage interprets the passage, but this is the most important part right here. What the author intended for the original readers to understand. What the author intended for the original readers to understand. That's in the interpretation of Scripture. What did the author intend? And so when you have that, you're going to be able to get at the plain meaning of the text. And once you have the principle, you can then bridge the gap into our culture and our time to find out what the universal principle is in the Scripture. We have to appreciate the clarity of God's Word. And you can all see this. You can all do this. That's why we get the Word of God open again on our laps so that I can actually point to it and say, look at this verse. Look at this. You can see this too. And every one of us should be reading the Word of God for ourselves and appreciating the clarity of it. And I love this um, illustration of this, how much we should be longing for it and the simplicity and the clarity of it. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants, he says to us, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Not necessarily that we're, this isn't written to baby Christians, this is written to everybody who's a believer to be like a newborn baby. Once in a while when newborn babies are born here, I like to go down to the nursery and just hold the newborns, okay? And then sometimes it gets awkward because the newborn might be hungry and not realize that his or her mother is not holding them, you know? And then the baby does that little awkward turn. Is everybody getting me? I don't need to be any more specific than this, do I? Okay, so then the baby does that. So that's when you take the baby and put him up on your shoulder, right? So that it doesn't get more awkward than that. But like, here, here's the thing. Like newborn infants, they know, listen, they know they're hungry. They know where 
get when they get there, and they know they're going to be fed and nourished. And that's the way God wants us to be with the Word of God. When we have a need and we're hungry, God wants us to turn to the Word, turn to the Word, turn to the Word, and get that nourishment, that pure spiritual milk that comes from God alone. It's uncomplicated. It's clear to the baby where to get that, and it ought to be clear to us. Now, finally, hey, listen, we've almost made it to the end. Feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose a little bit? Okay. When I believe that the Bible is God's word, I'm embracing its necessity. You and I simply can't do without it. We need the word. We need it because Psalm 119 verse 105 says that the Bible, the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Without the word of God, we would go about stumbling in the darkness. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 24, about a man who hears the Word of God and does it, and being like a man who built his house on the rock, so that when the storms came, it withstood the storms, in contrast to the man who did not do the Word of God and built his house on the sand, and when the storms came, his house was lost. In Matthew 4, we read of Jesus in the temptation. And as he was facing that temptation, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We can't just go after the physical things of this life and expect to be happy. We have to feast on the word of God. And then in John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 38, we're encouraged to believe in him so that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. Refreshing water that comes from the Lord to satisfy the thirsting of our own souls, but beyond to splash out from us on our marriages and on our families and on our friendships and in this church and to this world that desperately needs life in Christ. We embrace its necessity. It is light. It is rock. It is bread. It is living water to us. Here I stand. Bible is God's Word. Amen? Here I stand. The Bible is God's Word.